All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Good morning here, Providence Road, to our Northeast campus and our last weekend before we launch next weekend. Man, it is um, it's coming. We're very excited for that to finally be launching out our grand opening next weekend. Uh, I get the distinct privilege this morning to introduce our preacher for you this morning. It's actually one of our staff members over at our Northeast campus. Joseph Anderson is going to be bringing God's word for us this morning. He's our associate campus director there at Mercy Northeast. Uh, and I just recognize that a lot of you haven't had the chance to meet him. If you're here at Providence Road, you haven't had the chance to meet Joseph yet. And I hope you will do that after the service. Take it just a second to thank him for all that he is doing over to help get this thing up and off the ground, along with the rest of the core team there at Northeast. Um, this guy, uh, he and his wife, Kaylin, have been a part of our church now for a couple of years. And man, he is like the strength and conditioning coach of Mercy Church, okay? Uh, he is going to bring a lot of energy and passion but uh, he's in our elder development program. He's training to become a pastor of Mercy Church, and we just see God's hand on his life. We see God's uh, calling and gifting on him as a preacher of the word and a pastor, and that's why we're training him up uh, for that calling and excited to get to do that here. That's what we get to do as a church is train up uh, more men to lead God's church, and we're pumped. That's one of the things we do, and I'm, I'm so excited about it. So um, I'm going to stop talking, and that clock already started. That's on me, um, so just take note of that. But man, Will you guys join me in welcoming our brother, Joseph Anderson, to the stage? Thanks, bro. So, you know, I bet y'all were expecting someone a little bit more muscular if I'm the strength and conditioning coach, but this is what you get. What's up, North? I mean, what's up, Providence Royal? How y'all doing? <laughs> what's up, Northeast? Man, I love you guys. I miss you guys. Excited to be back with you all next week in our grand opening. I'm excited to be here and worship with you all this morning. Like, I love that song, y'all. I love the song that we just sang. Like, do y'all believe what we just sang? That Jesus is worthy of it all. He is worthy of it all. Why? Because for, from him are all things. And to him are all things which means that he does indeed deserve glory. He deserves glory. But how do we come to such a conclusion that Jesus is in fact worthy of it all? Like that's a pretty comprehensive statement, right? Because all does indeed mean all, right? You can't change the meaning of that word. So how do we validate such a statement in, the, in our day and age? in our culture, where we want quick solutions, where we often have polarizing opinions, where we fully embrace subjectivity? How do we, in our culture, in our climate, plant our flag on such a statement? Well, Matthew has placed here at the beginning of his gospel a genealogy for us to examine. And let me say from the beginning, this is going to take discipline from us as 21st century people, because we are indeed products of our maximum efficiency culture. And so a genealogy is likely something that we may or may not skip, right? <laughs> Y'all feel me? Like, am I the only one when I open up a book, I glance over the intro and dive into chapter one? Or, okay, I know y'all will feel this. So, so go with me. It's Tuesday night. 
right? You're like, man, what am I going to eat for dinner? What am I going to eat? So for me, that looks like Pinterest, maybe Google for you, and you're scrolling, you're looking for a recipe, you find the one. Your lips start smacking, your mouth starts watering, and you click the link. And here, this woman who has posted this recipe has given you a three-point dissertation on her shopping strategy. (laughs) She wants to tell you about her auntie and her cats. She wants to tell you about what she did for Thanksgiving. And y'all, I'm like, I can't scroll fast enough. Like, why doesn't this link have a skip to the recipe button? Right? But here's the issue. Here's my issue, at least. Sometimes, I want to treat the Bible like a recipe. Sometimes, I just want to ask the question, how much sauce do I need for my hot wings? Right? Like, get to the point. What do I need to know? And so genealogies get skipped. But we're not going to skip this genealogy this morning. We're going to read it in full. And so if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we will be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And it reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife, Solomon, excuse me, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzzah, and Uzzah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amos, and Amos was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jericho, and Jericho was the father, oh, excuse me, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheeltiel, and Sheeltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abayu, and Abayu was the father of Elikam, and Elikam was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zodok, and Zodok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Iliud, and Iliud was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Manath, and Mathan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Let us pray. You all may be seated. Jesus, my desire 
Our desire is simple. God, this morning, would you show us your glory? Would you allow us to see you in the full splendor of who you are? Would you allow us to worship at the reality of your salvation and your gospel? We love you, and we pray this in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. I would like to tag the title of our sermon today, It's Something Different. And I know y'all are wondering a couple things. Y'all probably have two questions. How many times did he listen to that on the Bible app to get some of those names? (laughs) Right? That's the first question. And the second question is likely, what on earth is this preacher going to do with this genealogy? So let me take a sip of my water. Because that was my question when I initially, when I read this, when me and Pastor Spence discussed this, I was like, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> but y'all, as I dove in, as I read, as I studied, I quickly realized that I was asking the wrong question. My question quickly shifted from, what on earth am I going to do with this genealogy? What on earth am I going to say to your people? To Lord, how will I say it all? There is so much beauty crafted and layered in this passage. Think of it like Shrek or an onion or cake. Or you know what? Let's let's call it a parfait, right? Because everybody loves parfaits, right? Each section is more sweet and satisfying than the one before. And my hope is by the time we get to the conclusion, by the time we get to the final layer, we will be so moved by the glories of Christ that it will cause us to worship. On the first layer, we see something practical, right? This scripture, this genealogy yields itself to memory, right? We have to remember that in this time, we have very low literacy rates and limited scriptural access. And on another layer... We have a portion of this genealogy that informs and validates the kingship of Jesus. Y'all, lineage was extremely important to them, right? You cannot be a king without the proper lineage. When King Herod couldn't find the rest of his records in the temple, he ordered all of them to be destroyed for fear of losing credibility. When they returned from the Babylonian exile and some of the priests couldn't find their family records, they were removed from the priesthood and they were deemed unclean. And so what we see is that lineage is essential to Jesus being king. Even if Jesus walks on water, which he does, even if he feeds thousands out of thin air, which he does, we should not accept him as king unless we can tie him back to the historical promises of the Old Testament. And this is important, this is good, but this is not the primary thing that Jesus is doing here in this genealogy. It's not the primary thing that Matthew is seeking to highlight. What we see here is that Matthew is giving us a parfait, right? And after we get done with the fruit and the yogurt, we get to the granola. After we get done with the fruit and the yogurt, we get to Jesus, And so, as we continue to dig, we see that Matthew's primary purpose is not practical. 
His primary purpose is not even information or validation, though those things are important. But the primary purpose of Matthew's genealogy is theological. Namely, it tells us something about God. If we look at the closing and the opening of this genealogy, we learn something about our creator. Matthew concludes in verse 17 like this. He says, so all the genealogies from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. In his conclusion, he highlights the three major movements of Israel's history. In the 14 generations from David to Abraham, we see that God is covenantally loving and choosing a people. Theological statement, God loves man. But in the 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon, we see the people turn away from God and God's willingness to punish sin. Theological statement, man chooses sin over God. And in the 14 generations from the deportation of Babylon to Jesus, we see Israel suffering in obscurity. Theological statement, our sin should, should separate us from God forever. But there is a glimmer of hope right here in verse 1. In the opening, Matthew opens the book, the book of the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus Christ, which would be more literally translated in Hebrew, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew, like John, is calling us back to the very beginning. And even though Israel is separated from God, there is an implication here that God is up to something. There's an implication that he is creating afresh again. Right here in the first sentence, we see that God is doing something different. Something different than before, something different and unexpected, and something inconceivable. So let's dive in to see this different thing that God is doing. Would you travel back with me to the time of Matthew's gospel? We are 50 years removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus, and many in Matthew's audience are skeptical of this new Messiah, skeptical of this proclaimed king, and they are not without reason. Consider with me their plight. They had been oppressed by the Romans for years. And finally, in AD 70, the temple had been destroyed and Jerusalem had been sacked. It was the exile all over again. Most of them had lost their land. Many of them had lost their dignity, and several of them had lost their lives. They longed for the glories and the comforts of yesteryear. They wanted, no, they needed another great king. And I'm sure they thought, if only, if only David were here. He wouldn't let this happen. And so Matthew meets them right where they are, and he highlights David in the text. It would be very difficult for us to see this because it's not in Hebrew, but it's painfully obvious in the Hebrew. Matthew creates an acrostic that spells David with the names in the genealogy. He also uses the Hebrew letters, DVD, which is how you spell David in the Hebrew, 
that add up 14 to create his um, genealogy sections. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. And he is the only individual in the entire text besides Jesus that is given a title. Jesse, the father of David, the king. According to Jews, David was the pinnacle of the Old Testament. He was the climax. He was the high watermark. From this king, from his line, was supposed to come another king. And their expectation was that that king would indeed rule in the same way that David did. Because David was a warrior, they expected a warrior. Like, David had killed thousands upon thousands. Goliath was just the beginning. There are, is an entire chapter in the book of Chronicles that lists out the victories that David had over his enemies. He and a few men would drive entire armies to flight. Like, we'd never seen a warrior like this guy. To get our heads around it, imagine, like, Achilles from Troy mixed with Superman. Like, that's who David is as a warrior. And so the Jews, who are currently oppressed by Roman rule, are like king like David would be preferable. We want a guy like that. When David ruled, they were wealthy. When David ruled, they were secure. David wasn't just any king, right? Like, this is a genealogy listed full of kings, but David is the king. What is Matthew doing? The people were sure that David was what they needed. But instead, they got Jeffrey. Y'all know Jeffrey, right? Jeffrey, he played at, at Illinois and UNC. I mean, excuse me, UCF. He definitely didn't play at UC, UNC. Somebody close to him did, though. No, not, not, not Jeffrey the butler from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> All right, guys. Jeffrey. Jordan? Or, or maybe you know his pops, Michael. He did play at UNC, right? Now, now, let me help you get your minds around what's happening here for the Jews, right? Imagine your favorite franchise. A lot of y'all, that's the Charlotte Hornets, I'm sorry. All right. Imagine your favorite franchise drafts Jeffrey, right? Expecting him to be Michael. Ooh. You, you feel your disappointment? You feel your angst around that? You feel that regret? This is where the Jews were. They wanted David the warrior, and they got Jesus the carpenter. They looked at Jesus like, this guy? This guy is the one who's supposed to save us? He's supposed to be our redeemer? Like when we step into the shoes of the Jews, we get their skepticism. This homeless dude from the projects? He's supposed to be our king? We're suffering. Where are his political credentials? Where are his connections? Where is his military power? Where is his charisma? They're looking at Jesus and they're like, this dude ain't Michael. Where's the jump shot? Where's the, where's the quickness? Where's the up and under? He don't got it. And as they reflected on the glories and kingship of David, they struggled to embrace this homeless, murdered 
revolutionary. They wanted tax relief and they got give to Caesar. They wanted revenge and they got turn the other cheek. They wanted power and influence and they got a command to wash feet and serve others. So they asked themselves, what is God doing sending us a homeless preacher born of a poor woman with rumors swirling around his birth? And the answer, God is doing something different than before. The Jews wanted God to run the play, send us a warrior, set us free. But God doesn't do it for two reasons. Number one, the first reason God doesn't just run the play is because their urgent desire for temporary relief over eternal matters was a result of their own sinful hearts. Consider with me that they knew they had broken the law. They felt their distance from God. The moral fabric of their country had eroded to the point where an angry mob called for the release of a murderer and condemned an innocent man for a struggle and influence. This is where they were. And their concerns were not, how do we get closer to God? It was not repentance, it was tax reform. It was political affiliation, it was financial stability, and it was their temporary comforts. Brothers and sisters, they were concerned with the wrong things. And they were dissatisfied with the God's different king because they had disoriented priorities. Listen to me, Mercy. You're concerned with your love life, I get it. You're concerned with your marriage, and that's good. You're concerned with your finances, and that's responsible. You're concerned with your children, and you should be. But if ever these concerns cause you to be dissatisfied with Jesus, then let me ask you a question. Are your priorities in order? What does it say about our hearts when we refuse the eternal king in hopes for a temporary one? The Jews were more interested in their temporary comforts than being reconciled with their creator. And it blinded them to the different but better thing that God was doing. And why do I say better? How can I compare Jesus' three-year ministry to the glorious 40-year reign of David where there was wealth and success and power? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. The second reason that God did something different is because David's kingdom didn't last. The people of his day ended up in bondage, and a thousand years later, the people were still in bondage. And David died an old man full of regrets, and in the genealogy of Matthew, he is arguing the inadequate nature of David's kingdom. And all of a sudden, the peak that was David seems like more of a bump in the rearview mirror. They wanted David the great warrior, but in all of his strength, he was unable to win the most significant battle. 
the battle that raged within him. Matthew jolts us out of Davidic bliss with the completion of verse 6. It says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is a story that the Jews would have all known too well. They would have went back in their mind and remembered that one year their great king didn't go to war when he was supposed to. He was content with all his victories, so he took a year off and he found himself peeking over fences and longing for what did not belong to him. One day, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was bathing, and he watched, and he watched, until seeing, seeing with his eyes was no longer satisfying. So he summoned her to his palace. He had his way with her. He got her pregnant, sought to cover it up, and when the cover-up failed, he conspired to kill the man whom she belonged to. And he thought nothing else about it until he was confronted by a third party. And so now the image of David the king switches in our minds to David the abuser of power. David the peeping Tom. David the sexual abuser. David the murderer. David did not establish the kind of kingdom that the people were hoping for. And so Matthew snatches off their rose-colored glasses. His kingdom was ripe with sin and disaster. He did not establish the kind of kingdom that God had ordained, and neither did his sons. Solomon, he worshipped other gods. Rehoboam, he, he placed on the people excessive burdens. Abijah, he was evil and committed the sins of his fathers. We get Hezekiah. He's a godly king. But his son Manasseh takes back all the reforms that he instituted, and he is widely considered the most evil of all the kings of Israel. Reign after reign, failure after failure, sin after sin, the people of Israel end up in exile, defeated by their enemies, carried off as slaves due to the righteous judgment of God. And so, no, God does not send another David. He does something different because something different had to be done. Here, our theological statements are still in full view. God loves man, but man chose sin, and our sin separates us from God. And so, God does something different. And what he does is completely unexpected. Matthew outlines an unexpected group of people in verses 3 through 6 when he highlights four women. He is this master craftsman, and what may be lost on us would not have been lost on the readers of his day. Y'all, look, look at me. You do not put women in genealogies. You don't do it. Many who read this would have been like, why is he putting women here? This is unnecessary and unuseful. Like, let me help y'all with the culture of the day. 
Every day, Jewish men would wake up and they would thank God that they had not been created a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And Matthew is seeking to intentionally communicate to us something about God and his kingdom. He is flipping on its head the cultural narrative, not just about women, but about who God is. Everything about this is unexpected, right? Like, if he's going to put women in there, you would think that he would put the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. But the four women that he adds, they have baggage and labels. We have Tamar, the deceitful adulteress. We have Rahab, the pagan prostitute. We have Ruth, the foreigner. And we have Bathsheba, the side chick turned stepmom. So we wonder, why? Why on earth would Matthew include them? But I think the better question may be, why on earth would God? Why would God allow these impure Gentile women to infect the pure bloodline of his Messiah? Judah? Yeah, that's about right. Boaz? I I can get down with that. David, of course. Solomon, yeah, he was the richest king ever. Great men and great kings. This is what they expected. But what is the point? What is the purpose of these women? In this genealogy, Matthew is combining the expected with the unexpected. The prestige of these men with the questionable character of these women. But let's look a bit closer. I think as we examine the actual stories of these people, we will see that each woman has equal to or superior character to their counterparts. Let's take Judah and Tamar, for example. Judah, the heir of the promise. Y'all, we sing about Judah, right? Hell, hell, line of Judah. Y'all know that one? Right? Like, we name our kids after Judah. Who know a Tamar? I don't know no Tamars. Y'all know no Tamars? Right? So we have Judah, the heir of the promise, and Tamar, the adulteress. And the story goes that Judah has a son named Ur. Ur marries Tamar. Ur is evil in the eyes of God. And so God kills Ur. And the law and the culture demand that the younger brother is to take the wife of his older brother. So Onan takes Ur's wife, Tamar, And Onan is also evil in the eyes of God. And so God kills Onan. And law and culture again demand that the younger brother take the the wife of his older brother. So it's Sheila's turn to play this game of Russian roulette. Right? And Judah is like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. All right, this happened to kill two of my sons. So what we're going to do is you're going to go back to your mama's house. All right, you're going to wait there, let this boy get a little hair on his chest, all right, and then we'll let him take a turn with Tamar the Ripper, right? (laughs) And so that's Judah's thought process, right? Because of course, of course, our sins, our, our kids are never responsible for the consequences of their own sin, right? But that's another sermon. Don't worry about that, y'all. Anyway, a couple of years go by, and then a couple more, and then a couple more. 
until it's painfully obvious that Judah never intends to give Tamar his youngest son. And so what does Tamar do? She hears about Judah coming to her hometown. So she dresses up like a prostitute, covers her face, wears a disguise. Judah approaches her on the street. They are intimate, and she gets pregnant with twins. The Bible crazy, ain't it? <laughs> like, this is how we get Perez, the great, 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 great grandfather of Boaz, who is also the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Like, that's crazy. And when Judah finds out that she's pregnant, he doesn't know that it's his yet, right? When he finds out that she's pregnant, he is furious. He says, let's take her and burn her alive in front of a group of people. That's his solution. And then he gets a moment where he realizes that he is the father. And the Bible says that his conclusion is that she is more righteous than he. So let's take a step back and ask the question, who is righteous here? Was it Tamar who deceived her father-in-law into getting her pregnant? Who took revenge into her own hands? Was it Judah who withheld his son, disobeyed the law, and approached street prostitutes? Was it Boaz or Ruth? Was it David or Solomon? Y'all, here is the unexpected truth that God is pressing in on us, that no one is righteous. No one is is worthy of God's love. In his meshing of these men and women, we see that God's kingdom is not for those whom we thought. It's not for the righteous. It's not for those of prestige and high standing. But y'all, there is better news here. We see in the inclusion of these women that those whom we think to be illegitimate and undeserving are the ones that God intentionally invites. Brothers and sisters, do you struggle with sin? I have good news. God has invited you. Are you struggling in your marriage? I have good news. God has invited you. You with the addiction, I have good news. God has invited you. You with depression, there is good news. We have a Savior, and he has invited the weak and the lowly and the needy. This is Matthew's point. The moral reputation of these women screams something significant about our God's salvation. Namely, that the gospel of Jesus Christ issues an open invitation to all sinners. Not just men, but women. Not just Jews, but Gentiles. And this gospel is not for the righteous. It is for sinners. And the gospel is what saves us. Matthew is emphasizing that all of God's dealings with us are motivated by grace. God has crafted history. He's crafted history in such a way that all who have ever sinned can come and know his relentless love. At the very beginning of the gospel, the all-embracing love of God is on full display. Nothing can stand in its way, and there is no one who does not need it. The salvation, it's 
different than before. And it's unexpected for an unexpected people. And finally, y'all, this salvation is inconceivable. It's inconceivable. The gospel that we proclaim truly is above anything we can ask, hope, or imagine. There's a pastor in Florida who tells this story about ants. And it helps us get our minds around just the brilliant nature of our salvation. He says that as, he, as a child, he had this troubled neighbor. He said this neighbor would do this thing where he would take some peanut butter and he would spread it on his driveway. And ants love peanut butter, apparently, because they would come and they would get stuck in the peanut butter. And this kid would then take his bicycle and ride over the ants. Troubled, right? Like, there's something wrong with this kid. And so the guy says, man, I, I wanted to do something to help the ants. Like, there's a serial ant murderer on the loose, and we, we got to do something about it, right? And so he's, like, contemplating, and I contemplated with him. I was like, what would I, what would I do in this situation? And he's like, maybe, maybe I'll just go scrape up the peanut butter, right? Like, if there's no peanut butter on the ground and the ants can't get stuck and, you know, problem solved. Or maybe I'll go have a conversation with the kid. Like, bro, there are so many more ways to have fun than this. Like, <laughs> you can do something else with your time. And if all else fails, maybe I'll go tell his parents, right? Like, y'all know what y'all kid is doing in y'all's front yard? It don't just make him look crazy, it make you look crazy, <laughs> right? But at no point, at no point would the individual who was seeking to help these ants learn to speak ant, right? Like, that's just, that's too far out there, right? At no point would this individual who wanted to help the ants communicate with individual ants over thousands of ant years, which I'm sure are shorter than human years, right? Right? They wouldn't think to validate their claim of sending an ant savior by promising that that ant would be born of an ant version. Right? Like, that is just inconceivable. And at no point would that person who was seeking to help the ants become an ant of their own free will, live a full ant life with all the inconveniences of being an ant, dodging boots, existing at the bottom of the food chain, only to conclude his ant's life with climbing into the middle of the peanut butter and taking on the full force of the bike for the rest of the ants. That's insane, right? That's, that's crazy, right? It is equally as insane, brothers and sisters, that God would become a man and endure our life and die for our sins. We must not take that for granted. If we believe that God went to these lengths to redeem us, then let it lead us to worship. Let it lead us to repentance. In Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve chose fruit over God. And every single human being from that day on has chosen distance, 
and sin from their creator. And y'all, God doesn't just try to find manageable ways to save us. He doesn't just do reasonable things to save us. He does something different. He does something inconceivably beautiful. He does something unquestionably better. Y'all, this is the granola, the foundation, the greatest conceivable news in the universe, the gospel. Hear it, savor it, and worship at its reality. That God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus, born of a virgin. Jesus, the suffering servant on our behalf. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus, the climax of all of human history. Jesus, who lived the full human life with all its inconveniences. Perfectly submitted to the will of God. Jesus, who did not fail like David, and yet would take upon himself the sins of David, Abraham, Rahab, Boaz, Ruth, you, and me. That Jesus. Like, Mercy, do you believe this? Do you believe this, Mercy, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked? That we had hearts of stone, that we were enemies of God and children of wrath? But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, at the right time, died for the ungodly. He shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated him and when we turned our back on him, he shed his blood for us, all the while pleading for our forgiveness with his final breath. Do you believe that he hung his head and died? Do you believe that he shed his blood for us? Do you believe that he was buried in a tomb, wrapped in cloth? Do you believe that that's not the end of the story? Early Sunday morning. Y'all believe something happened? Y'all believe something happened early Sunday morning? Because early Sunday morning, he got up with the sun. And early Sunday morning, he had defeated sin and death in the grave. And he was victorious over our greatest enemy, proving himself to be exactly who he said he was. He is better than the King David. He is the God who grows with authority to forgive sins. And he is the God who accomplished the unthinkable, namely reconciling a sinful people back to himself. So give him glory, mercy. Worship him, mercy. We began asking this simple question. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy of it all? And we start this Advent season with an astounding, yes, he is. Let us pray.
Jesus, thank you so much for your salvation. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your goodness to us, God. We do not deserve it. You are a faithful God. You are a righteous king. You are the lover of our souls. Oh, God, thank you for this heart of flesh that can now beat for you. Lead us to worship here and now, oh, God. Come dwell among us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your perfect name. Amen.